Previously, on Solve the World. I've left no will or living testament, but you are welcome to claim any of my fortune as your inheritance. Use this note that I've written in my hand as certification. I'm taking Robin with me. I'm so glad you led me to him. He's such a better helper than you could have ever been, but how could we have known that at the time? The secret, Jennifer, is this. Croatoan means more than just death. Death isn't enough. It never was. Respectfully yours, Lilith Babbitt. Solve the World, a fictional adventure told in 100 episodes. There were always those stragglers left behind, left alive somehow. Episode 57, End Transmission. Jennifer Dash survived the Blitzkrieg. The small Texan town she had become mayor over less than 24 hours prior had been blown to smithereens. Yet, she lived. Marianne Margaret, the nearly shaved, blue stubbled haired bodyguard assigned to Jen, spooned with her inside the bowels of a busted water heater. But before I circle back to explain the details that Pied Piper so breathlessly circumnavigated, it's helpful now to zoom to the other side of the planet and spend a few brief moments with an ever more aggravated Miles Faw. Since Jen's disappearance, and Marshall's for that matter, the life of Miles Faw had become exceedingly difficult. Life, for him, tended to go as expected. He was the type of man who got what he wanted more often than not, and even when he somehow failed to achieve his desires, he could always sum up the reasons why. Miles Fa was adept at psychoanalyzing the ins and outs of everyday life. Procedure rarely went awry from expectation. These months since Mecca, somehow though, they'd gone awry all right. They'd gone horribly awry. The immediate plan was to recreate the Graviton machine. In theory, go beyond mere duplication, make it larger, available for the mass transport of human identities. Well, that plan went asunder when the engineer of the device offed himself in Nairobi in front of Miles' eyes. You know this. Since then, Miles led a desperate campaign to find the book Croatoan. The logic was simple. Lilith Babbitt used the book to figure out how to transcend. Maybe the cost of transcending would ultimately be too great, but Miles couldn't count the cost till he knew for certain, until he held the ancient pages in his hand. Today, his wanderings have brought him to the beautiful marble image of the greatest mausoleum ever constructed, the Taj Mahal. It was a magnificent building that was easy enough to see, however the heavy soot in the air dampened the atmosphere with a sticky haze. Furthermore, the once pristinely immaculate ivory marble of the Taj itself now looked 
orangish-brown, another side effect of the bomb that blew New Delhi to hell a mere 200 kilometers away. People cowered away from monuments in the days preceding the bombs. The logic was sound. Capitals, high-population metropolises, were the most likely targets of further bombings. Mass exoduses from major city centers in just about every big city in the world clogged highways from Atlanta to Bangkok. Strangely, however, after merely a few weeks, days even in some instances, swarms of people came back to monuments. It wasn't necessarily about living. It wasn't a hope that these monuments survived the bombs. Rather, it was a sense of sacredness. At least, that was what was happening in the surrounding environs of the Taj Mahal. The walkways were littered with souls, staring up, some even praying to the building itself. Similar pilgrimages were taking place at the pyramids at Giza, Mount Rushmore in South Dakota, and at the Sydney Opera House. People came to the monuments to pray, to bow down, with hopes and aspirations that the monument's luck would somehow course into their own veins. A small, rounded-bellied Indian man, who spoke without a lick of an accent, called to Miles Faw. The two stood side by side as congregating hordes marauded here and there all about. They stood midday in the shadow of the Taj. Where's Janner? Miles asked the Indian man. I'm here, the man responded. Miles assumed he didn't understand. Where's Mark Janner? The attorney? I'm here, Mr. Fa. The Indian man pointed to a lapel mic on the side of his tie and a piece in his ear. I've sent Amit to be my eyes, ears, and mouthpiece. I can hear you fine as long as you speak up. Amit will only say what I tell him to say. Miles couldn't help but flinch and work to submerge a grimace. This wasn't good. His negotiating prowess was just halved by the presence of Janner's avatar. Why are we here? Fa nearly shouted. This is a new world, Miles. A new landscape. There are listening ears everywhere. In the walls of every motel and diner. Even, I suspect, in the air. As small as dust. Little ear particles riding the breeze. Only amidst a mass of humanity can we be confident we are alone and free to speak candidly. Strange logic, Miles Mould. Not wholly buying the rationale. Couldn't any one of these meandering thousands be a spy? With so many rumbling about, it would be impossible to spot a spy. Okay, Miles finally offered. Why did you bring me here? Why did you ask for me, Janner? I believe you and I have the same agenda. I doubt that very much. Yes, I assumed you would. You've always snubbed your nose at me. You think too much of yourself. See? You think my blood runs cold, blue. But we want the same things. Almost always have. Miles didn't want to respond didn't want to acknowledge the bloody lawyer's insight. He grunted instead. The only difference between us is that you use your body, put yourself in harm's way to climb your personal mountains. I, on the other hand, prefer to keep my hands clean. I send others. I am a puppeteer. You and your ilk are mere puppets. Good, good. You brought me to India to mock me. If you want something from me, you've got a funny way of asking for it. Oh, please. Let us not devolve into scripted cliches. Funny way of asking. Please, Miles. With all your intellect, you can't do better than that old one. Miles turned, started to mill away from Mark Janner's Indian avatar. The little man followed, yanked Miles by the bicep. Please, Mr. Faw, let's not play the game. That's all I'm saying. Tell your clone here to take his stinking paws off me. Amit let go. Thank you. 
Jen Dash and the Croatoan. Miles pretended not to care. He didn't raise his eyes, didn't make eye contact. You want her, you want the book. That's as clear as day. You've been wandering around the world searching for the Mad Arab's words. Ahmet <sighs> <sighs> sighed, clearly embellishing Janner's expression to make sure he conveyed the lawyer's sentiment. Like I said, you and I want the same thing. So what? I've been working with some communications directors, people with similar technological prowess as the smuggly apparatus. I can override signals, get my message across to every TV set, smartphone, radio on Earth. I believe Jennifer Dash is walking on this Earth. Miles, I believe we can reach her. How could you know that? Marshall Winston and Jennifer Dash disappeared from the Kaaba. You know this, correct? You know that I know this, Miles said sternly, unhappy that Janner knew as much as he did. A few days ago, I was sent a finger, detached from its body. The appendage, a left ring finger, nasty little thing, used to be attached to Marshall Winston. My analysts believe it was removed from Winston approximately two weeks ago in Nepal. If Winston's alive and bartering his appendages to rogue agents, then even a thimble brain like you must assume that Jen is also around. You're bluffing. Why should I believe you? Miles said, more as a rebellious dare than anything else. Why, oh why, do we keep playing games? Amit pulled a severed finger from out of his coat pocket. He wagged it out in front of Miles's face. In disbelief, Miles hurriedly looked around. Isn't anyone else seeing this? This man has a severed finger in his hand. But no. No one. No one seemed to notice. I wouldn't come here unprepared, Miles. Now, I want the Croatoan. You want the Croatoan. But I have reason to believe that you want Jennifer Dash more than you want the old manuscript. She's in dire straits, by the way. Everyone wants a piece of her. She'll be dead soon, if not already. Don't say that, Miles mumbled. Excuse me, I didn't hear that. Could you repeat? I said, don't say that. Ha ha, he he. Your powers of persuasion aren't so effective over a transmission, are they, young Padwan? I'll cut to the chase. I have reason to believe that Jennifer Dash knows where the book is. She either has it in her possession or knows where it is. I need the book, Miles. I'm sure you can understand that. I'll help you get Jen, and in return, she'll retrieve the book for me. That's the deal. If I could find her, I'd find her. Why would I bother with you? Ah, well, that's where we can work together. I have the infrastructure. You have the passion. Come to my studio. It's just a little drive from here. Send her a message. I'll make sure, wherever she is, she'll see it. She'll hear your voice. You'll remind her that she loves you. I won't waste any more of your time, and I'm not a man to ask for something twice. Will we work together? Will you come with Ahmet and record a message? We can work out the details later. Will you do it? No. Miles turned from the short, out-of-shape Indian and smushed himself into the tangle of the crowd. Less than ten paces Miles took before he saw them. A dozen men coming at him from every angle. He tried to fight them off. It didn't work. Too many. Paid well. He screamed. The crowd moved out of the way. This was a new world. Onlookers scattered. There were no good Samaritans to be found. People didn't know what barbarism was taking place, but they also didn't care. 
They only thank God that they weren't the one that the men were going after. How did it come to Jen and Marianne hiding in the guts of a water heater? Quite simply, actually. The morning of the press conference, the, quote, former, unquote, mayor, had moved the spectacle from City Hall to the sanctuary of First Baptist. This was good news for First Baptist and good news for the former mayor. The whole charade was a big looky-loo to increase the mayor's national standing, if you could still call America a nation. The church auditorium could hold 150 more people than City Hall, probably 300 more in total once they jammed them all in there. With all the media, and now random hopeful citizens of the Republic looking to touch the girl who transcended this wretched world all streaming in, the former mayor had to have his time in the spotlight. At 9.18 a.m., already running late due both to technical difficulties and the logistics of squeezing as many folks into church as possible, the former mayor took to the podium, seething excitement. Jen and her two bodyguards, the aforementioned Marianne Margaret, and a gentleman by the name of Branley Clemson III, not named Marky Mark, stood behind the main sanctuary in a hall that connected the back of the auditorium to various Sunday school rooms. There were streamers and balloons set up, armed and ready for Jen's big entrance. The former mayor was to shout out her name, Branley, waiting right at the swinging door behind the stage and pulpit, was to signal Jen's triumphant entry. That, of course, never happened. The former mayor was a verbose man. He thanked so-and-so, trumpeted the cause of his own actions that re-energized the small Texan community before Jen's arrival, and even told a story about his son Johnny's root canal last week. The Humvees rolled in at 9.27. The assault-rifled men and women hidden behind the darkened windows waited for the blast before taking action. At 9.30 on the dot, the bomb went off. It was just a simple bomb, nothing fancy. One of their number had snuck in early, smashed a black backpack underneath a pew, and skated out of there. The bomb went off right on schedule. Unfortunately for the assassins, the ceremony was not. Branley's head was dented in horribly by the swinging door that blistered into his face in a million shards. But the blast wasn't quite big enough to successfully eviscerate every soul in First Baptist. Jen and Marianne happened to be farther from the blast than most people, having still been in the bowels of the church. While panic spread like wildfire through the church's survivors, the Humvee assassins went to work. Their orders were simple. Leave no one alive. This would seem easy, but the building was still partially erect, and the desecration of hundreds of bodies strewn about was much to take in, even for well-rehearsed murderers. It was hard to tell where one body ended and another began. Marianne was pivotal to Jen's survival that day. She pushed Jen towards the back of the building immediately. For Jen, the world was a haze. She was in shock, so everything had a detached feel about it. Marianne, very much living in the moment, was anything but detached. 
Aldrin was easily convinced to follow the blue-headed orders. The janitor's closet, located at the east end of the north hallway, right next to the women's bathroom, held the water heater inside of it. Marianne's first instinct was to take Jen into the bathroom once they heard the machine guns, but the water heater, busted and half-fallen through the wall of the water closet, rested with its gut busted in. It was the perfect hiding space. The water had all stormed out of the large cylinder, but that didn't stop the innards from being nearly unbearably hot. So hot, in fact, that once inside, Jen fainted. She awoke hours later, Marianne lightly slapping her cheek. Hey, 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 mustache. Yeah? Jen said too loudly. Shh, quiet. We have to go. Where? I scouted as best I could. Behind the church, just 200 yards off, is my house. We can hide in the wine cellar. Okay, Jen said, not yet in her right mind to comprehend the gravity of the situation. Rather happily, Jen crawled out of the water heater. Not noticing Marianne's leading, she turned left out of the janitor's closet. Before Marianne could stop her, Jen had pushed her way to the sanctuary. Then, she saw it. Like a slideshow in one of those Halloween horror rides. A room submerged in blood and guts. Limbs leading nowhere. Cheeks without a face. Tongues pinned to the wall by red, sticky stuff. Oh God. Oh, oh my God. Oh. Oh my. Oh. Oh dear Lord. Oh. Oh heavens. We need not discuss that view in any further detail. The point is... Jen's stomach dropped to her feet. The shock was over. Her skin lit a flame. Pins, needles, swords pierced the fibers of her being. She didn't realize it then, but she covered her gaping mouth with both hands. Marianne yanked her around the waist, thrusting Jen out of the purview of any onlooker. We have to go. Now. Oh, heavens. Oh, heavens. Oh, heavens. Oh, oh. Shh. It's okay. But we have to go now. Uh, we... Where? Out the back. You'll see the house. Cross the field in one small street. As soon as we go, run as fast as you can. Miss Dash, don't stop for anything. If I go down, keep running. Get inside the house. They stumbled to the back door. Are you ready? Can you run? Jen nodded, tears rolling down her cheeks in uncontrollable gobs. You can't look back, okay? Why? Why do we have to run? The people that did this, they may still be around. Big breath. (sighs) Didn't work. Try again. (gasps) Big breath. Again. (sighs) Again. (sighs) Again. Mustache, Jen. We have to go. I don't think it's safe to stay here. Okay. On the count of three. One. Two. Three. Jen ran. She wanted to look back. Wanted to see the demons chasing her. But she needed to be fast. Run faster. Be faster. She closed her eyes and ran like the wind. 
Marianne to the house. They pounded on the door. An elderly couple smothered them in, hugged them both, crying all. An hour later, the parents of Marianne Margaret, Marianne herself, and young Jennifer Dash, the current mayor of all three citizens sitting beside her, hungered down and hiding in the underground wine cellar. They popped a cork, drank, and tried to wish away the pain they'd all endured that day. Sometime later, after an extended silence, Marianne spoke up. Can I ask you something? Yeah, Jen said meekly. It was probably good, right? Most likely, Marianne would ask about the Kaaba and where Jen went. That'd be a good story to tell. It's a good thing to reflect upon pleasant memories amidst a sea of horror. A good thing. Jen prepared herself to tell about the wooden bedroom, the closet, and the person she met there. And most of all, about how she was able to let go of her guilt and shame. Literally, she glopped it all out of herself. Maybe in time, they could learn to glop out the memory of that sanctuary, put it tightly into a little box, throw it away. Maybe. Maybe in time. But that's not what happened. Marianne's question was different. Your hand, it doesn't look like a prosthetic or a new hand. On the TV, they said your hand was chopped off. It was. Then where are the scars? Jen hadn't thought of that. She surveyed her hand, felt the grooves of her skin with her fingertips. There was no scar. And the color, it wasn't off. Before, even with that gunk they put on it at the Druidry Center, it never matched perfectly. But now, in this moment, her hand had no scars and no skin coloration. It was as if she never lost it to begin with. What did that mean? I... I don't know. I have a theory, but you won't like it. What's that? You're not you. Huh? You're a clone or something, made from the... the DNA of the real Jennifer Dash. No, that's not possible. I'm me. Trust me. You'd have all the same memories. You wouldn't know. Marianne's mother elbowed her husband. Harry, go get the television. Bring it down here. Put it on the nightstand. See if we can't find some news about what happened. But you said we should... Mrs. Margaret elbowed Marianne's clumsy father again. Go! Now! The elderly man followed his orders. Jen, Miss Dash, uh, Miss Mayor... (laughs) You don't have to call me that, Miss Margaret. Oh, okay, good, fine, said the flummoxed older woman. Do you know who did this? Do you know who would do such a thing to get us? No, Jen answered matter-of-factly. I don't know. Harry Margaret shouted down from the top of the stairs. I, uh, turned on the television. There's the same program on every channel. It keeps playing, even on Smugly's channel. Well, bring it down, Harry. Let's watch it. Yes, dear, but, uh, Miss Dash, do you want to see it? Yeah, I mean, I guess. Why wouldn't I? Uh, the, the video's for you. It took old Harry the better part of two hours to bring the television down and set up the accompanying cords and equipment in the wine cellar. While they waited, Marianne Margaret decided to tell Jen her secret. You know, you might think I saved you today, but that's not true. Honestly, I think I blacked out. I only remember leaving, running, and seeing the bodies. No, 
I don't mean that. I mean, the reason you survived the explosion. Oh, I'm sorry, did you jump on me or something? Shield me from the... the blast? Thank you for that, by the way. No, I didn't do much today. Well, I... I mean, I hit you in the water heater. Saved both of our lives with that hiding spot, but, uh... No, that's still not what I'm talking about. Marianne, don't, Mrs. Margaret protested. It's true, Mom. What's true? I saved you last night. Marianne, what'd you do? I casted a hedge of protection on you. Excuse me? Jen said, somewhere between bewildered and intrigued. I'm an Egyptian priestess, and I casted a spell of protection over you last night. That's why you're alive. You're Egyptian? Jen said while reflecting on the very white color of Marianne's skin. No, she's not. She's just playing make-believe, protested Marianne's mother. Mom! I choose to be a priestess in the line of Isis and Osiris. Oh, Jen said. How'd you do it? I can't tell you, unless you join the priesthood. Oh, Jen said again, choosing then to be silent until Harry Margaret got the final extension cord for the TV plugged in. All set to go. Shall we turn it on? Jen nodded. They caught the transmission mid-sentence. Sounded like. That'll be our code. Miles was dressed in an immaculate three-piece suit. His hair was slicked back in a style Jen had never seen him sport before. His eyes were a little puffy. He stood in what seemed to be a business conference room in front of a window overlooking not much. Some planes, a little reservoir maybe. Jen couldn't place it based on the surroundings. Miles nodded to the camera and smiled. The image flicked to black. Over the black screen, large white letters and a voice. End transmission. Then, the screen flashed black and new words popped up. Begin transmission. The words faded and light shone into a shot of the business room empty. Miles walks into the frame, staring at the camera the whole time. His message begins. Jen, this is Miles. I need your help. Please, come see me. Call the number on the screen. Tell the operator the words I said to you at the pit. You remember them, right? You remember what my words sounded like. That'll be our code. I'll keep you safe, Jen. I always have. Always will. Please call. You don't have to be alone in all this. Call the number, Jen. And then, repeat. The message was just playing over and over and over and over again for everyone to watch. The room was silent. Marianne, Miss Margaret, and Mr. Harry Margaret watched not the TV, but Jennifer, each trying to calculate her response to the message. What could she possibly be thinking? After several stone-cold viewings, Jen spoke up. What's the date today? She said, looking around at the others. It's October 29th. Why do you ask, sweetie? Said Mrs. Margaret. Can you take me to New Braunfels? I need to get there. Why? Marianne asked. I'm going to smuggling. Hey, this is Dante Stack, creator of Solve the World. My favorite game growing up was the game Risk. And the reason was that unlike Monopoly, Jenga, (laughs) any other game you could think of, is that one by one you got to murder your competition. Even Settlers of Catan, which is a fun game strategy-wise, always feels a little 
mm, unfulfilling at the end of it, because how do you win Settlers of Catan? You get 10 points. Eh, so what? Everyone else is still alive. They still have, you know, pieces on the board. It doesn't quite have that feeling that Risk had. If you weren't already aware, I recently released the Solve the World card game. You can buy it right now from our online store, dantestack.com slash store. My name is spelled D-A-N-T-E-S-T-A-C-K. We're selling it for $10.95. It doesn't come with a board. You can play it anywhere. It's pretty much just a specialized deck of cards. But one of the fun parts of the game that I've woven into it to at least entertain myself is there's an assassin card. So there's really two ways to win the game. One is to find the ancient book Croatoan. The other is to assassinate every other player. And of course, the assassin is Lilith Babbitt. So go right now, supplies are limited, and order your copy of the Solve the World card game. It's a lot of fun, guys. Just takes a few minutes to play, but there's a lot of strategy, a lot of different ways it can play out. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. As always, this episode used sound effects and music that are labeled under Creative Commons licenses. You can find attribution for those sound effects and music on our show notes page at DanteStack.com. Guys, I love you. Thanks for listening. See you next week. And don't forget, especially if you're not willing to buy the card game, tip jar. Tip jar. (laughs) 